Welcome everyone back to the How Did I Get Here podcast. Today we are, or I should say I, am with uh, Doug and Pete Cooper, and they are the founders of Goldberry Roasting Company, which is in Ashland, Ohio. So welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thank you very much. I got to clarify from the start, Pete is not a founder. Okay. He's he's just a Johnny come lately. Okay, so Pete is... He's like, <laughs> Pete does all the work, and I just like tell him... Like do this different. No, see, I love that. He That's... does. He does a lot. He he is the operations manager. He kind of handles the operation. That's yeah. a classic dad move to a to yeah. a son right there. Yeah. Like yeah. you know, like I, I'm a second generation pastor. And my dad would say the same thing. Yeah. He would just be yeah. like, Nah, he just you he gotta just, he you just gotta pay your up. dues. <laughs> you gotta pay your dues, right? Yeah. He just showed yeah. up. He's no, he up. does. He does a lot. He does the work. And um, but yeah, I started at about ten years ago. Started roasting. Um, and then this place that we're in right now, we've just uh, we've been in for more than a year, but we opened in November. Yeah, so we're sitting in the new location yeah. of Goldberry Roasting Company. Mm-hmm. It is not a coffee shop. It it is sort of a coffee shop. It's a roastery, so we roast coffee here, um, and then we decided that we might as well serve drinks, uh, coffee drinks. We just do drip black coffee and. Um, so we're hesitant to call it a coffee shop because people think we'll be slinging frappes and espresso drinks and that kind of thing, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's just um, we don't do that. It's here just not right the now. Goldberry way. Not yet. I mean, not in the foreseeable future. All right. Cool. So this coffee shop is, or sorry, see, I just made that mistake. <laughs> it's this, okay. This From roast... now on, if you call it a coffee shop, there's grace. No, I'm right? going to get it grace, right. I'm getting we'll, it right. We'll be fine with that. The roastery, <laughs> this this roasting company sits in Ashland, <laughs> Ohio. Right. Um, and Doug, you're from Ashland. So, mm-hmm. um, what what was it like growing up in Ashland? Uh, Ashland was a pretty typical, uh, as, as far as I know, because I don't know. Uh, this is the only place I grew up, but um, it was pretty typical. Uh, small town, very safe, um, very felt very protected, uh, very relational. People knew each other. Uh, back when I was young, the main street was. Like, that's where people shopped. There was a place for suits. There was a place for men's clothing, a place for women's clothing. There was the Jupiter store. It's very, um, you know, very, uh, I don't know, is this cliche, but very community-centered, very community-centric because you wouldn't hear of going other places to shop or whatever. Um, very, uh, this town is very religious, uh, faith, faith-oriented. It was especially then. Um, most people were probably in church on Sunday mornings. Um, it was a really good environment to grow up in. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, just kind of like you said, people would shop down Main Street. So what? Yeah. What's the? What's one of the most noticeable differences of living in Ashland today compared to when you were a young boy? Um, probably, probably that that people. Now the the trend's changing back again, but the people to do uh, shopping or entertainment, eating that they people would go out of town. Um, I used to say that our downtown area just moved to Walmart, so uh, you know you can get everything that used to be downtown at Walmart. It may be a better or worse quality, and you can see everyone. It used to be like uh, you know around Christmas time, you'd be on Main Street and you'd see everybody. And um, you could get what you needed, and now that's kind of moved 
um, to Walmart to some extent, but um, that would be the main thing. And then um, back when I was young, I was born in 1962, just to date myself. Um, there, there was a lot of industry here, so especially rubber companies. And so there, you know, un unemployment was low, things were thriving. And then um, with, you know, more globalized manufacturing, a lot of those, those companies left. And it left a little bit different um, feel to it. Some of the business left too. I like that. Uh, I like that little bit of historical nugget you put in there with the rubber companies. What, what's something else about Ashland's history that most people would not know what's like the most this is like the most as far as you can remember as yeah. far as i know this yeah. is the most interesting piece of <laughs> of ashland history um, well I, I got all kinds of things but one um the that sort of the the original settlement that uh eventually became ashland was called helltown helltown hell h-e double hockey sticks okay so I and it was that. a and it was a, a native american indian huh. village um, and then um, that became Greentown uh, and then Uniontown. So Ashland used to be called Uniontown. And then when, when they decided to do uh, post offices, there could only be one post office in every town. Um, there was already a Uniontown. So Ashland had to change its name. And Ashland was named after the plantation of Henry Clay's, which was a political figure back in the day. Uh, Ashland was the name of his plantation, his, his farm. Hmm. And, uh, he had come and was one of the, one of the helpers in establishing our courthouse. Uh, I don't know. He's from Kentucky. I don't know why he was here to be honest, but that's some useless trivia. Um, also there was a time when, uh, coffins were made in Ashland. There's a coffin, like it was one of the coffin manufacturers. That's pretty exciting. Interesting. Uh, and there was a time where we were considered um, uh, the balloon capital of the country, made more balloons, and then nipples. And I mean baby nipples, huh. <laughs> baby baby bottle nipples. Uh, and a clarification. Yeah, <laughs> we made more of those than any town. So that's some interesting stuff. Um, nice, yeah, that. Softball capital of the world. We, fast pitch softball was huge here. And we had, we had, um, players that were brought in by companies, the rubber companies, um, and they would employ them, but they just played softball. And we had, we had teams that would come from New Zealand, from Australia, from all over the world to come in and play tournaments here in Ashland. I feel like I could have you back and yeah. we can do just like an Ashland. Like it's been some Ashland. <laughs> I got to get this out of the way. Our family, Pete's son, Otto, who's almost two, is the ninth generation of Coopers in our county, uh, the, the ninth consecutive. Uh, our, the first Cooper came here in eight, 1822. Wow. So we've been around a while. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I'm, yeah. I'm serious. I may, yeah. I may actually do that. I that, enjoy that. That would be, yeah. that'd be a cool thing to say. I got a lot to say. This is, this is to. where we're from. So, yeah. yeah. All right, cool. Good okay. to know. So outside of being a historian on all things Ashland <laughs> and being um, the founder of, of Goldberry Roasting Company, uh, you are also a believer, a mm -hmm. Christ follower, which yes, is sir. it's always exciting to have conversations with believers. And you have worked in ministry in some way, shape, or form yeah. for 35 years. 
you 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 were at Ashland University for a time. Is that correct? Uh, I I actually worked at Ashland Theological Seminary. Okay, yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. so I, I like for us to start there. So okay, one of the unique things about this podcast, one of the reasons why I even wanted to start it, was to give people this this inside look into ministry. Mm-hmm. I I'm 34 years old. And I am from the Bahamas, and I am a black pastor in Wayne County, Ohio. <laughs> and so when I meet people... You're not normal for here. I'm not, no. So when I meet people and they say things like, nice to meet you, what do you do? And I open my mouth and I say, I'm a pastor. I get a variety of reactions. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I get is a question, what, what do pastors do? Do you only work on Sundays? What do you, what do, you do? You know. So they always want to know what that is, and they want to know that in the context of where I work and and where I do ministry, and why do I live here, and all of yeah, these things. So, sure. um, But you have led uh, worship at your, is it still the same church? Yeah, Park Street Brethren Church. So Park Street Brethren Church, which is here in Ashland. Yeah. And you've led worship there for how long? 35 years. So you led worship there for yeah. 35 years. So straight. Just, 35 years straight. 35 years straight. So I'm, I'm going to give you kind of like the, the foundation, and I'm going to let you ride with it. Okay. So what's what's some of the unique perspectives that you've had over the last 35 years of a, of a couple of things? The church, about leading worship, about you know working side by side with pastors and ministry workers and just seeing the gospel impact in Ashland, um, maybe even the resistance to it. Just what's some of the inside scoop of ministry life that you would have a different perspective on? Mm-hmm. One, because of how long you've been doing it consecutively from the perspective of a, of a worship leader and, yeah. you know, a lay leader, if you want to call yourself that. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to refer to it as full-time ministry. That seems yeah. like that's full-time to right. me. But, um, so yeah, just what are some of those perspectives? Okay. Um, I, I started leading worship back when, um, contemporary worship didn't even have a name. Um, our pastor, um, Arden Gilmer, who was at Park Street for a long time, um, asked me if we might start a new worship service that would connect what he thought would connect with people who weren't used to church. And so um, we, I said yes, um, and we started that. And uh, you know, it was me and my guitar, and my guitar isn't so good, um, but that's how we started. We started with music and preaching that we thought would be more connective to people who just didn't grow up in the church. Um, it wasn't really that radical. And, and he and I, um, you know, I wouldn't say we had the worship wars that some churches have, um, but we kind of had to have each other's back for a while um, because people really kind of confused or, you know, weren't yet used to the idea of, doing something different to appeal to people who weren't from church. It's mm-hmm. like, well, church is tradition and we're used to it. And that's where we find comfort and security. So that disrupted that a bit. Um, and fortunately he was a pastor that had, had my back because I was the guy that looked like was, was bringing it, you know? Um, and then I, I and our board at church had to have his back as well. Um, and so really it, it, um, <laughs> Over 35 years, uh, it it's evolved. At, at this point, our, at our church, we don't we don't have worship wars anymore. It's uh, we still up till the last few months we had two kind of separate congregations. One was in our sanctuary, one was in our gym, and we ended up bringing the two together. 
Um, and it's been very harmonious. We've tried to um, say, like, let's, instead of focusing on style, um, let's focus on serving people and bringing hospitality uh, to our congregants. Um, and with that, then I think people kind of get that we're doing our best. Um, I've had a, like a, a wide range of experience with pastors. In fact, um, one of my claims to fame, not claims to fame, one of my um, things I like to talk about sometimes is that I made it to teach in a seminary without a seminary degree uh, or a master's degree. And I did a lot of, I have done a lot of pastoral functions without ever becoming a pastor. pastor. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, a lot of that is just because I've been around so long, they don't know how to tell me no or get rid of me. Um, but um, served probably beside, partnered closely with six or seven pastors. Um, and then working at a, at a seminary, um, seeing how pastors are trained. Um, um, it's given me some pretty, I think, pretty insider um, uh, perspective about, about pastors. Um, and what I would say is um, when we're talking about pastors and you're one and that's the water you swim in, I think, you know, one, it's hard to stereo, we shouldn't stereotype any group, uh, but um, I like to separate the pastor, the person from the role. Um, and I kind of look at it like a hermit crab, like the, the pastor is the, is the crab and the role is the shell. And, um, you know, pastors are some of my best friends. They're um, the, some of the people I respect the most. They're usually generous. They're usually uh, willing to, you know, do things and not get monetary payment. They work, they work a lot of hours. They wear themselves out. Um, they're some of the most respectable people I know, some of the most trusted people I know. And so that's one side. The, the shell what I've seen in my experience, both through the seminary and, and, and through my, my work with pastors uh, from a church perspective, is the shell um, that we try to force that crab into um, is probably the place where um, the, the problems arise and some of the dysfunction happens. Um, so there has, and I'm just going to keep rambling until you tell me not oh, no, to. No, you're good. I, actually, I do have a quick question. When you yeah. say force them into the shell yeah how have you seen that how have you seen pastors you've worked with set six or seven pastors yeah. so that's six different personalities yeah. oh that's yeah sisters. that's it's bigger than our church it's a cultural thing that is to, to me i'm going to talk I, I i don't know how to talk any way but plainly um it's it's dysfunctional it's weird uh kind of the cultural role kind of the cultural shell that we've tried to force pastors in so the first thing is um, somehow we've gotten this idea that a pastor needs to be a CEO or a good administrator. Um, we've kind of taken the roles that are mentioned in, in Scripture. We've balled them into one, and especially for senior pastors or lead ministers or whatever. Mm -hmm. We've assigned, okay, you be good at all that stuff. And we'll give you this weird authority, like because you're the man of God, that you get to, you know, if if taken to the extreme, uh, you're the go-to person to make decisions, even if you're not expert in them. Uh, so that's, as a cultural thing we've assigned to pastors, it's not scriptural, it's not biblical. Um, there's probably the authority thing is in there some a little bit. Um, 
Another thing is church growth. The whole church growth thing is probably as destructive to the church as, as anything uh, because we've made, we've made pastors producers. How do you, how do you define, you, you know, quote, the church growth thing? How do you well, just, just this, uh, sometimes it's a, um, a convolution of uh, conflation of um, growing disciples and growing an organization to be bigger. Uh, so, so, so the tension between making disciples and producing numbers, or, or even yeah, or even the confusion between okay. the two, yeah. So, um, it, oh, I thought I silenced that. Sorry. Um, so, in ch- in church growth, um, a lot of times what pastors are expected to do is build programs, uh, build more engaging opportunities for people, uh, and if you know if there's not growth happening then we consider it to be stays you know it's um it's 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 not successful um it also kind of builds in what how we measure the 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 church and how it how it's functioning or succeeding um and from my perspective it's been lay people who have expect expectations for pastors and we say um you know, pastor, since you're getting paid full time, since you all staff are getting paid full time, you need to be doing stuff and we need to see measurable results. And so you go, OK, we'll do that. And then we create programs, you create things that we can engage with. And then we say, well, but we really don't have time to do that stuff. And so then there, there becomes this. Um, so when those things aren't populated, we go, well, why aren't your programs working? And because you're not engaged and there becomes this kind of tension that happens. So one of the things that, you know, as a young pastor that I've noticed, you know, through maturing in faith, maturing as a man, maturing as a leader, uh, and then in, in my role specifically, I, I enjoy studying the scriptures. I enjoy spending time with people. I enjoy the discipleship process. It's not always easy. It's not always fun, but I enjoy that. I enjoy, you know, preaching in the traditional sense. Mm-hmm. No, I don't. I don't. I don't mean that just standing on a stage behind a pulpit. I mean, I mean just the the sharing of the word of God, the yeah. mobilizing the gospel. Yeah. I yeah. those are the things that I really enjoy. Those are the things that over time I've learned that God has skilled me, like you know, molding me into. And to your point about the shell, there's some other things that that I I understand and I have to do. Um, just the nature of, of ministry requires you to do those things, but there are some things that I'm just not good at and that I don't enjoy and that I don't like that as a part of my role. So I, I understand what you're saying. I, I get that. I feel that, you know, I, I live that in a lot of ways. And so you, you talk about that. How have you, what have you seen that you would say, Biblically, biblically based, like this is straight out of scripture. Out of scripture, I understand the role of pastor, of overseer, right? Mm-hmm. We see that First Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy mm-hmm. in First Timothy, and he yeah. says, this is what an overseer is. Right. We, you know, in the original text, yep. the word overseer is mm-hmm. elder, pastor, leader, yep. shepherd, right? So yep. we know that. So we take that out of scripture. We understand this is the role of pastor. How have you seen that role work 
absolutely best, like to its best, biblically based, but in, you know, I'm using quotes, in the modern church world. Yeah. Well, um, I think that it's still it's still refining. I mean, it's always, you know, there's there can always be improvement. But the way I've seen it work the best is when a, a, a pastor uh, or pastors um, understand their responsibility as a, an overseer to be one that helps a shepherd moves people, moves sheep, right, to greener pastures and, and Psalm 23. And they do that for the thriving of the sheep. We don't just move sheep to move them. We don't move sheep in a certain direction because that's the way I want to go. Um, and and so, so we move people toward greener pastures. Um, that is the goal. If, if thriving of the people is the goal, then that's when it seems to work the best. And also, in Psalms 23, Psalm 23, um, you lead me beside still waters. Um, uh, it works best, what I've seen, is when a pastor understands um, when pastors understand that their people need rest and that rest needs to be part of the rhythm of life and that the church can't violate one of the commandments, which is you need to have your Sabbath. And that Sabbath might be a day. It might be a spirit. It might be. But a lot of times the church in wanting to grow and wanting to make a name and to expand they move the, the, the sheep into places that it won't necessarily make them thrive. And they don't stop at the still water. And where I've seen it work best is when those realities are, are realized. And then also that the pastor realizes, well, I am a shepherd, but there are also others within the body that may not get paid, but that are gifted for leadership. And if I respect and acknowledge and weigh their input, then um, one, the buck doesn't always have to stop with the pastor because it, it doesn't have to. And two, there's a much more comprehensive um, vision and expertise sharing that happens in the leadership of the church. Outside of, outside of, of sin, outside of uh, disconnecting from God, what's the one or two things that you've seen that facilitate the failure of the role of pastor? Um, territorialism and ownership. So um, there's, there's gotten to be, you know, with the whole branding craze um, and the whole franchising craze that happens everywhere, it's, you know, ubiquitous. How's that? Um, we've, pastors as as other leaders can, can fall into this idea that, listen, what we do at our church is for our people, and we want to kind of own their their discipleship process. We want to kind of own, the, we want our people to be our brand. And if they start to find that life of discipleship in other ways, we call it parachurch, or we call it unchurch, or whatever, um, that pretty soon our, our objective is to say, well, that's not like legit. That's outside legit because it's not part of our brand. Um, and so then we start to look at instead of pastors in a community sharing people saying we're the pastors and this is the flock and we don't care how they uh, are discipled and, and come closer to Christ. It's more like, no, you, you kind of 
you kind of need to follow our path. And we, we really don't really want to share you that much. So I think that's kind of the, that's both the territorialism, then you, you get this weird, unhealthy competition that nobody really wants to admit. But between, like, how, how many McDonald's could you have in a, in a town of the size of Ashland? And like, and have them all be harmonious. And yet we have all of these churches in the towns. You have them in Worcester. We have them here who are, are kind of branding themselves and vying for the flock. And then as they get the flock, they want to keep them. And then you've got this kind of consumeristic kind of um, flock who's going, well, I don't, that pastor isn't nearly as entertaining or I don't like the way they do this or that. And so they're going around and checking out the different brands. Yeah, we see we see this 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 modern trend of, of church shopping, and you know I've said to people, you know, church shopping leads to church hopping. <laughs> yeah, you know, just kind of you've seen yeah, that. You do, um, and that's that's a unique, a unique yeah. kind of like trend that you see. Yeah, in, and and I think that you know part of that is like we, I I want myself into this. Uh, we are we are dumb sheep that don't always think a lot about what we do. Um, and it doesn't always make sense for us to go and look at different churches um, to fulfill our needs, right? But at the same time, we as churches begin to pander to that because we like to people to be adhering to our brand. Mm. We don't want to lose them. And we consider losing them to be when they're not consuming our stuff, right? So, so could we imagine like that I would be as prevalent in my church and another church, a Baptist church across town, like that I am a part of both of those communities and that that's okay with both those pastors. You extra- extrapolate that to all of the people in those congregations and it's like, well, wait, who? so who is my flock and who am I responsible for? Uh, as a, so we, we, we talked briefly about on, like the understanding of the role of pastor and overseer, especially biblically. As a worship leader, and as a as a community leader, as a leader in your local church for 35 years, and obviously you know your son sitting right next to us, so you you've been a leader in your home. How do you <laughs> how do you how do you view yourself in the position of a worship leader? I mean, musically, you know that yeah. gets a little weird sometimes. Yeah. But how do you view yourself <laughs> yeah. as a worship leader? and as a spiritual leader, as a part of your church community? Um, my, my thing is I've, I've been a worship leader, but I've always felt like music isn't my strong suit, um, even though that's what I do in the church. Um, my strong suit, if there is such a thing, has been more uh, a desire to connect people with God and with each other. And it just so happened at some point in my life that I figured out that um, that's Jared. He's just he he rents an office back there. <laughs> he's not he didn't he's not an interloper. Um, he uh, that that music somehow got people's attention for me to do that connection. And so um, a couple things. One, I feel like I am a um, leading worship allows me to be a matchmaker with God and his people kind of in that, you know, that union that we're supposed to be in with them. 
uh, and then also as a, a host, like that when people come to our church, um, I my role is to make them feel as if you would if people are coming to your house, that you want them to be relaxed, you want them to be comfortable, you want them to feel natural about being there and that they're not just welcome because that's cliche in church, but that they are that it's a natural thing for us to be together uh, and that we can be who we are here just like we would be at home. And so that's been that's been my role. Um, I'm almost always a worship leader of, of, of a bunch of people. Uh, as I lead worship, my thing has always been um, when we do practices or rehearsal, we do spiritual development first. And if we have time to do music, then we do it but that the spiritual development, the chemistry there is much more important than the uh, accuracy, the tonality, the rhythmic uh, precision that comes with music. If you have chemistry with one another and with God, then he takes care of a lot of the rest of the stuff. Um, so as a, as a leader, the thing I try to model with, with my people that are in music is, listen, you're a servant. Our one purpose is to connect God and, and um, his people. And if we can be distractions to that by promoting ourselves to be more prominent than we should be. What's, and I'm using this, you know, this isn't like an official term, but what's prevented you from, quote, making the jump <laughs> from from being, you know, and I'm saying this this way on purpose because this is how it's portrayed sometimes in churches, what's prevented you from making the jump from being just a worship leader to being a vocational pastor? Um, back when I was in in college, um, I started down the pastoral track. I I was probably a junior in college, and my dad had been a banker in town here, and um, my dad is the best person ever. Um, the person that I've respected my whole life as much or more than anyone. Um, and um, I made this vain proclamation that I wasn't going to be a money-loving business person. Um, I was going to become a pastor. Um, and had I been him, and Pete said that to me, I would have, you know, not taken it well. My dad took it well. Uh, over the next two years, as I prepared to go to seminary, God made it evident that I would be a horrible pastor because I like the shell that I'm talking about just feels prickly to me. Like it just doesn't feel right. And, and at the same time was like, um, and this is what I did at the seminary. Eventually God's like, you know what? Um, you spend at least 40 hours a week doing work and we need people there. Like, it's one thing to have our Christian leaders in church, but if they're all pastors, who's going to be leading in a vocation, in art, in government, in science? Who's going to be considering that their ministry? Like, just doing the work well, just doing the work as unto God, you know? Not even including, like, having prayer ministries at work and trying to evangelize and all that stuff. Um, so it became real clear to me that God would rather... Um, made me suited better for business and 
for the marketplace than leading church. And so it's never been difficult. I've been like part-time staff as a worship person and I've led a small group uh, or um, young adults. But when I look at the shell that pastors have to fit into, it's just like, well, I I just, I couldn't do that. It just, and that's a, that's a way for God to make sure that I don't get in that role and screw it up really bad. What's a unique God-given part of your personality that's allowed you to be, you, you said this earlier, to be, to be able to back up or have the back of the six and seven passages that you've been with a long time? Like, and the reason why I'm asking is because I, I'm here, what, I'm, what I'm hearing from you is a lot of language that a number two guy uses. Mm. And I'm a number two guy. So just, just real quick, at, at our church, I, I'm the executive pastor there. You know, we have a lead pastor. And, you know, that term executive pastor means so yeah. many different things in different yeah. places. But really, that's just a fancy way of saying I'm the number two guy. Um, and the, the role of the number two guy is, isn't as easy as people realize it is. And, and one of the things that I, I love, I absolutely love this. God has given me the personality type just the the way that I think, the way that I move, the way just everything he's given me what I honestly believe is the makings of a really good first officer. Mm. You know, like I, I just like I love being the cheerleader for our lead guy. I love being the person that he calls into his office and says, Hey, can I say something to you that I can only say to you? You know, and I don't yeah. mean that in a yeah. in a bad way. I I right. love being I love being the person that also can kind of give the elbow and be like, I don't think that's a good move. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. being that person. And I have people all the time just because of my, you know, what people have said is my speaking ability, um, just my ability to connect with people. I was joking with Pete earlier and telling him that I'm a forced extrovert. And he's like, well, you seem like an extrovert. I'm not at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And so I honestly believe that. I, I really believe that. And not only do I believe that, I accept that. I accept that that's what my role is. I love being... The number two guy. I've had people ask me, are you, are you, would you ever start a church? Would you lead a congregation? And I'm like, look, the Lord would have to do a serious work in me mm. to do that because mm. it's not who I am. My, I'm a second generation pastor and my dad, like you, he is the person that I've respected from the day, from from my brain could conceptualize that yeah. this man is my father. Yep. He is a person that I've respected out of any other human being yeah. ever. Yeah. So we, we share that. We right, have that in right. common. So, but my dad is a, He's a lead pastor, and he is a dynamic pastor. He's a dynamic leader and shepherd. So just imagine that pressure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Once, once, once it became the realization that I'm going to be in full-time ministry, I'm going to be a pastor, but not only am I going to be this, but I'm going to be the be- I tell people, I say this out loud. I say this from the pulpit. I want to be the best number two guy in the history of 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 ministry you know right, Just, i right, say it as a right. joke but like so that's that's where i am and you it sounds like obviously the the seat is a little bit different mm-hmm. you know the roles yeah. are yeah. a little bit different but what are some of those things that you have realized that i doug cooper have been gifted by god himself to be able to be the support for these these lead guys over 35 years yeah. what, what's that thing hmm, interesting uh, well, one one thing I think I've learned is that, um, and Pete's heard this a lot with coffee. It's uh, you got to stay in your lane, and like I know what my lane is. It's my lane is um, pretty narrow. Um, it, it, it's not uh, all the things that a senior pastor would be. So I don't have a desire 
like, which doesn't mean it's good or bad, uh, but my lane is um, one would be, you know, that connecting people with God. And two, where it might be a little, my relationship with pastors might be a little different is I think I tend to be more of a Nathan kind of a voice um, than a um, Stephen. Mm-hmm. And, and that doesn't mean I'm a mean, fire-breathing prophet, but um, my thing has been um, the church. So I've been at this church for 35 years. I've been part of the church, a big church for all my life. And uh, to, to feel like with the pastors that we've had, that God has obviously led them there and that um, uh, they are there uh, because of their gift mix and um, that I like am able to be loyal, but at the same time can look at the church and say, listen, there's a lot of pastors and worship leaders and CE directors that come through here, but what we really care about is the, the people. And so, so pastor, let me help you like make sure that we're serving the people. And sometimes that is a very positive thing. Let, let me get beside you. Let's work together on it. We, that's the, the usual part. And once in a while it's saying like, I'm a lay person. You can't fire me. And I have respect among our people. So you need to listen to me now. And, and here's what I'm hearing. Here's what I'm seeing. And you can trust what, that I, what I have to say is from a good place in my heart. I, I have no need for control. I have no need for power because I'm not getting paid to do this. And I've had every opportunity to leave and, and I'm here. And so I think that's kind of the, it's almost that, um, this, this sense that, that I can provide some support of what the, what the congregation needs, um, and that some people, I just had a guy today say, um, sometimes in church we only say 90% of what we should say to other each other. It's the other 10% that's the most problematic, but it needs to be said more often. And usually with, in this role, I just am able to do the, the 10%. And I'm also able to hear the 10% from other people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, whether, like, that's kind of the biblical model, right? We're supposed to have shepherds and... Yeah. And we're supposed to have apostles, and we're supposed to have prophets, and we're supposed to have teachers, and apests, I can't remember the, uh, even evangelists. Evangelists, yep. And those are supposed to be kind of a partnership. And so I just kind of feel like I'm filling out that partnership. But because I'm not beholden to the church, I, like, if you don't like what I'm going to say, you can fire me, and it's okay, you know? Does that make any sense? Absolutely, yeah, that, okay. that makes sense. I, so... Most of the people that's going to be listening to this and hearing this, they are not pastors. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So, yeah. so what, and you, you kind of said it just a moment ago, but almost, almost as if I'm going to ask you as a lay leader, yeah. as a ministry person yep. that's been doing this for, mm-hmm. for 35 years, has been like, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor <laughs> and say to people, that may be listening to it that know me. And even if they don't know me, if they people listening and if they go to a local church, they they have someone who was their lead pastor, you know, just to use that. What would you say to the lay leaders, to the people that are helping us mobilize the gospel, help us to do ministry Mm -hmm. since you've been there, since you've been, you know, number two guy Mm -hmm. for 35 years, what would you say to those people? Yeah. Well, first of all, you have to 
establish a trusting relationship because nobody cares what you have to say if they can't trust you, right? So trust means that you've got to say, I'm committed to you. Um, I want a relationship with you. You can't trust anybody without knowing them. So you gotta, you gotta know, you gotta befriend your, your pastor. You can't like, they can't just be your entertainer and they can't be your boss that you have to have a relationship. You can't trust each other without a relationship. Um, so, so that's the first part. You got to establish trust it has to be two ways. Um, and you can't do that by sitting on the sidelines and throwing stones. You can't do it by being cynical. You can't do it by voting with your presence or by, you know, like trying to leverage or undermine or whatever. Doesn't work. That doesn't build trust. Uh, so you got to build trust uh, and loyalty. And, and then second of all, um, you have to speak on behalf of the well-being of the body, not yourself. So if you're a layperson and you come with complaints or praise or whatever and it's consumeristic and, or it's individualistic, um, eh, it might matter a little bit. But if it's like for the well-being of the, pe the, of the people, uh, so, so this is a this is a common thing right now. We just I just had a meeting. I'm <clears throat> I found in an organization that this that can be our third podcast. It probably could be two, <laughs> <laughs> but um, talk to other people, talk to the person that needs to hear it. And if that's your senior pastor, if that's your pastoral staff, go to them and do the other ten percent. Like say, listen, um, we just like you're wearing us out or uh, you're, you're like, we, we can't handle all the stuff you're throwing at us or whatever it is, you know? Um, and I think that's where I was saying there, this, the real scenario was um, we, there's, there seems to be this movement among lay people that churches are just like, where's the solace? Where's the rest? Where's the peace? And people want to go to their pastor and say, listen, like, just could, could you just chill a little bit? Like, give us some white space. Even in worship, give us some white space. But we talk about it with everyone else, and the pastor's the last to know. Yeah, he has no idea what's going yeah. on. Yeah, and I would think that most pastors would go, oh, you want less from me? Cool. <laughs> I'll take it. I think most pastors would just be appreciative that you would come to them first. Right, <laughs> I mean, right. it's just like, you can actually come talk to me. I can't tell you how many times I've said that. Like, I've, I mean, sometimes this isn't always with the from the right place. My heart isn't always in the right place. I, I'm going to be honest. And sometimes I'll, you know, I'll sarcastically ask, did you forget where my office was? Do you not know where, <laughs> yeah. do you not know where I am? You could have, you could have come and just talked yeah. to me, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I think they would appreciate, appreciate that as well. Yeah. Sometimes, um, I, I think that we right or wrong, like we elevate a pastor's role, um, out of reverence, which is good. Right. But we also, when we elevate it, it, puts them in a place that we don't think is approachable much more than probably most pastors like some pastors love that you know mm -hmm. i mean yeah. just like any yeah we've seen that yeah ceos or whatever um but for the most part it's like well i can't like they're much more spiritual than me they sit around and pray about this all the time and they read the bible well who am i to go and tell them so we tell everyone else and i think that just you know breeds a lot of dysfunction that doesn't help anyone yeah so 
those are the things that I would say. Um, and, and I think that um, most of the time, you know, our, we're so remote from each other. Our, our relational FaceTime is so, so small. We just don't develop the trust or the credibility or the approachability. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I like that thought about, about trust. Well, I think we, we've covered a lot. Uh, I really I really appreciate and like that perspective from a lay leader, whether that's part-time, full-time, mm -hmm. um, a man that's been in that role for 35 years and really been able to see that. I really appreciate that that word, if you will, to to other to other lay leaders and um, just that that perspective of ministry and of and the role of pastor and what you've seen and and how you've seen the the church mobilize the gospel and be an impact obviously in the community that you've been in for so long and not just you but your family you mentioned right. you know, for so many generations so i really appreciate that and um i think uh now we can get into the coffee part the of real things. stuff yeah okay